So this evening, I want to talk about spiraling. You've got one? Okay. Spiraling. And why, why, why I want to talk about spiraling is because uh, when we sit in meditation, we generally have a very kind of linear idea about meditation. Of course, we know there is no goal, but we still hope there will be some progress. And generally, the idea is that the progress will be steady and going up, you know? So we are from here, and we're such a terrible person, but, you know, over there, once we get there, we'll be this fantastic person, and then everything will be fine. That generally, there is this kind of like ascension idea, this kind of direct thing. And I remember when I was uh, in Korea, there was this wonderful tradition at New Year to go and bow to the elder. So we would go around the monastery bowing to the elders. And once we went to bow to the second below, the one below the Zen master in spiritual practice. And then he said to us, and he just had his hand on the table. And he said, you know, practice, you advance a little and you come back a little. You advance a little more you come back a little bit. You advance a little more. And I always remembered it. Because this was somebody who had practiced meditation his whole life. He was really humble. Wonderful human being. And basically what he was saying is that yes, you know, there is progress in practice. But the progress are not necessarily linear. You get to this plateau, then the next plateau. He was saying, you know, of course you advance a little, but you might come back a little. Then you can advance a little more. And that's why when uh, I look at this picture, so these pictures are called traditionally the ox herding picture. And they're basically the path, the meditative path, in, in, in art, in creativity, in pictures, images from the Zen tradition. They started in China and then they've been uh, taken in Korea, in Japan. And so you might wonder which way they go. <laughs> I will explain and it will become clear. And so, in a way, basically, uh, this idea of this picture, which are generally associated with some short poems, is the different stages of meditation, the different stages of the path in picture. And when we see, we think about stages, we hear about levels, and generally we think one, two, three, so I start at one, and then I go to ten. And then once I am at 10, I stay there. And that's the ultimate goal. But personally, I think these pictures, this path is like a spiral. That yes, we go up, we progress, 
there is more calm, there is more wisdom, there is more compassion. But it doesn't mean that we don't come back to some of the first picture, but possibly at a different level. And so that's why I want to look at this picture also in terms of this paralleling. That, you know, we, we go through one stage, but later on we might go back to that stage, but from a different angle. So, the way they work, in terms of the way I did the photocopy many years ago, and that's why the last one is a little <laughs> topsy-turvy. I don't know what happened many years ago. They go from here to there, then we go down like that. That's how it goes. So the first one, you see a little boy, and he's an ox herder. And basically, the ox herder is looking for an ox. Or you could say a cow herder is looking for a cow, or he's looking for a bull, whatever. He's looking for something. And so in a way, this is the first picture. So you see him looking. He's looking for something. And this is a stage where, why are we looking for something? To me, that's what is interesting. At some point, we think something is missing. We think we need something else. So then we, we look for something. But in a way, we nearly don't know what we're looking for. So it's kind of like we're like the little oxerder kind of wandering. You feel often you're missing something. Or maybe you want to improve something. And so you're kind of looking. You kind of, there is this searching. And I think we have to, I think the searching, that first picture is important because it starts us on the path. And at the same time, we have to be careful because sometimes we keep looking, we keep trying, and we never find anything that feels the missing. So we have to be careful, I think, with this, the, the starting point. What is a starting point? And how that starting point, if we want to be full, totally, like if you feel something is missing, and you try many different things and it fills you a bit, but not enough. And so you keep looking, you keep looking, and there's still this empty, this little missing something. And so we have to be careful there, I think, to look. And what does it mean, that feeling of missing something? Or is it more that we want to learn something? Personally, that's what really started me on the quest, was seeing that I kept repeating the same mistake. And I thought, well, maybe I need to learn to do things differently. So finding ways to do things differently. So this is, in this picture, we're looking for something. Then the next picture, because each has a title, this one, the title is Finding the Traces. So here he finds traces. He finds footprints. And they do look like uh, ox, cow, buffalo, footprint, and not elephant or who knows, footprint. So in a way, it's kind of like we find some little traces so we're looking for something, then we find some little traces. 
And I think what is interesting here in terms of the traces, in terms of the footprint, is are they ancient footprints? Did the cow, the ox, the buffalo pass 10 years ago? And they're barely visible. Are they really like fresh footprint, like, you know, it was there yesterday? So in a way, it's kind of we're looking. And then I think in terms of uh, meeting the spiritual path, the meditative path, there are so many things. And then we might be a little overwhelmed, like there is too many things. What should I choose? Should I choose a path because it's the most ancient one? And that's kind of like, you know, the stamp. Or do I choose a path because it's the quickest one? Or that's the way it's presented. Zen is presented as a shortcut. And then you still have to meditate as much as anybody else. (laughs) So it's a funny shortcut. You know, or somebody say, you know, it's a complete path. So in a way, you have these traces, and there is many different claims to these traces. And then the question for us is, is it relevant? Is it relevant to us? Is it the footprint I'm looking for? And I think this is in a way when... We have to see that we're not, when we're on the spiritual path, often there is this impression that the great teachers, ancient masters, the Buddha, they are fully awakened, and me, I am really nobody, I don't know anything. But as the Zen master said, you know, each person is a Buddha. Each person is a potential Buddha. So in a way to see that there is possibly more learning, more practice, but we start with the same person so that we are not so different, we're not so far away. And so these traces have some connection with us, are relevant to us. And then you have the third one, And the third one is seeing the ox. So you see the bottom of the ox. You see the tail. And this, I think, is kind of a little more about, I would say, meaning. So you see something more clearly, something that you think, "Mm, yeah, that looks interesting. Yeah, yeah, I might be searching for that. You know, this. And then the question is, is it meaningful? To me, can I apply it? I mean, when I was uh, in my, I was 18, 19, and that was many years ago. And in those days, uh, nowadays you have Deepak Chopra, is everywhere. And the Dalai Lama, they're everywhere. And Thich Nhat Hanh also is a bit everywhere, but not possibly as much as this too. But in, my, in those days, in those days, uh, in the 70s, the big name was Krishnamurti. That was a big name. That was really kind of one of the top. But there was much less of, the, of these things at that time. 
And so I got hold of a book by Krishnamurti, and his thing was to be aware. So you had to be aware. Okay. And I decided this sounded like a good idea to be aware. You know, I was looking for something, and it, you know, sounded, you know, it seems to be relevant to be aware, and seemed to be meaningful. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's be aware. So I took Krishnamurti book, I took a blanket, and I went up to the mountain. And for three days, I would fast because it was more practical, and I would be aware, just like he said, you know. So I was sitting in the top of the mountain. I would look at the book, be aware, and then I would be aware, be aware. And after a day and a half, I gave up because... it did not seem to work. It did not seem, I, I did not seem to find a way to move from what was written on the page to what I was trying to do in the experience. I, I could not, so the meaning was not transferring into an action or something I could do which seemed meaningful enough that I could continue to do it for three days. <laughs> After a day and a half, I gave up. So in a way, it's like we find something. And it might be very meaningful for someone. And it might not be meaningful for you. Or it might not be something which makes sense to you. I mean, once when we're in Korea, often you had Westerners, Australians, or different people who came and wanted to see meet the great Zen master. So we would take them to see the great Zen master. And we loved our great Zen master. We thought he was great. We learned a lot. We were keen on him. We thought he was a great guy. But once, this Australian came, and he really could not see the point of this great Zen master. And he really could not see what we saw in him whatsoever. You know, he was like, what's special about this guy? You know what he said? Who cares? (laughs) And to me, that was fascinating. Because it showed me that you could have the greatest master or the greatest teacher, but if there is no, the meaning does not pass through, if it's not meaningful, if it doesn't make sense, there is no point. So it's kind of looking at that. It's not like, again, the most sacred of the Moses and Mosat is, is it meaningful? Can I apply it? Does it make sense? And so in terms of the spiraling, different things will make sense at different times. I think this is important to see that. The same with the first picture in searching. You see, you might do one practice for 10 years, and it really satisfies you. And then you think something is missing. And then you might search again another practice. Or you suddenly feel, I need something which is more relevant. So you might do something in a certain way for many years. And then you think, ah, this is not so relevant to my life anymore. I want something which is more relevant to my condition now. That, I think, is what the spiraling is about. Then you have the four picture. And the fourth picture is called taming the hawks. So finally you found the practice, 
it's meaningful, it's relevant, and you can apply it, and then you go for it. And then, possibly that's what you experienced during this week. <laughs> You're really keen, you want to do the meditation, you want to do the practice, and you feel like you kind of caught a buffalo who really doesn't want to be caught. And so it takes you this way, then it takes you that way, and then it's kind of like you just have to hold on for dear life. And I would say, in a way, this is when the practice starts, when actually we, it's not an idea, just an idea anymore. It's really something we really do with our whole body and mind. And I think then what we meet is actually our habit. Because spirituality is wonderful. You hear about truth, you hear about awakening, you hear about freedom, and you think, yeah, I want that. But then it's not like it's floating and it will jump on you. <laughs> it's actually something you have to do. And then what you see is that actually the habits are quite strong. At the beginning, I think at this stage, the habits seem so strong that you kind of feel they are stronger than me. But I think the, the picture is about actually standing firm and realizing that, yes, the habits are strong, but I can handle it. I can be with it. Some years ago, we were... Um, we kind of, with different uh, people, we had this idea of uh, creating a small Buddhist college where they, the students, 12 students, who were residential for a year would have everything, everything you can think of. They would have the meditation, they would have the study, they would have the social action, they would have the therapy, they would have the art, they would have the gardening, you name it, they had it. And as part of it, they had community. And a lot of people want to live in community. They think community, it's such a wonderful idea to live together. And we did this for four years. And every year it was the same. And it kind of filled the schema of community building. Forming, storming, norming. So the first three months, they were very happy to be at the college and to be in community, and it was so wonderful. And the second three months, it was terrible because they realized that just being together, just doing all these things, actually did not transform them immediately and that other people did not change fast. And they did not change fast either. And so in a way, they were confronted by them not changing and others not changing. It was very interesting to watch this. And then the last three months, it kind of generally, kind of, uh, they came to certain harmony and then they knew they were going to leave anyway. So there was get out close. But I think that's what this picture is a little about. That, of course, spirituality is wonderful. Meditation is wonderful. 
But actually, it's really about dealing with our habits. What is it that stops me from being free? What stops me from being awake? And it's just habit we build over time, which actually start as survival mechanism and then become habituated. And I think the past is very much about bringing them back to their creative functioning. Then you have the next picture, number five. And this is herding the ox. So now the ox is more quiet, is easier, and then the little boy holds it just a little bit, just in case. And this, to me, is a picture where we start to learn, actually to become our own teacher. I think this is very important, that the teachers are just guides. They're just there to make suggestions, just there to kind of, you know, sometimes talk about experiences or various things. But you are the one who do the work who apply it to your own conditions. And then, there, you know, it's learning over time. When should I be a little more effort? When should I be a little easier? When should I put a little more concentration? A little more inquiry? And also, at times, it will be difficult. And at times, it will be easy. So I think this is when, in a way, we start to have more confidence in ourselves, in the practice. That, in a way, it becomes our own. We know what to do. Once I went to this great master in Korea, and I bowed to him, I said, Master, Master, how can I make my question vivid? bright and vivid. And he did not say anything. Then finally he said, you know what to do already. You know it already. So I thought, you know, I was expecting something a little more grandiose, a little more (laughs) helpful. But as I left... You know it already. And then I realized I didn't know it already. And actually, I was the only one who could do it. I think that's what this is about. You know it already. You know it now. And so it's about, in a way, this picture is about applying ourselves. Then you have the next one. The next one is called Returning Home. And then here you can see there is no rope anymore. And the little boy is playing the flute. So it's a very easy picture, a very light picture. I would say a creative picture. And I think this picture is really important. Because you might have the impression, sitting here, walking in silence, that this is a really, really serious endeavor. And that you must look very serious and feel very serious, you know, You are really serious, heavy meditator. (laughs) But to me, this picture is telling us that at some point, the whole point is to become lighter 
The whole point is to become more creative. So, of course, it's a serious matter, but we don't need to take ourselves seriously. And to me, of course, at the beginning, we are so keen that we are so serious about this. And that's what I would say. See, in the monastery, you had all the young monks and the young nuns. They're so serious. And you, you saw the older practitioner, and they were kind of lighter, making jokes and, you know. And I think it, we have to remember that dimension of lightness, of ease, of in a way, I would say nearly being lightly in the world. So that is not such this kind of like, this meditation is not this, like you get up, up in the morning and you think, I must meditate. <laughs> you know, like you tell your family, now I am meditating. <laughs> you know, and, and it feels so heavy. I mean, I had a friend many years ago. I was really the early day of meditation in the 50s. And he told me this story. He was one of the first person in France learning meditation. And he was an architect. And he had created a little meditation cell in his architect office. And he would tell to everybody, I am going to meditate. And everybody said, oh, no, not again. Not again. <laughs> Because every time he would come out so upset and angry. <laughs> and then finally somebody pointed it out to him. And then he realized, yeah, yeah, I must be doing something wrong here. <laughs> and he realized he was kind of repressing. Don't think. Don't feel. <clears throat> and then he thought, oh, no, no, that's not the way to meditate. And so he kind of like uh, changed his method. And then he was much lighter much easier to live with. So I think we, we need to remember that uh, quality. And then the next one is the ox is forgotten and one is at home. So you would say all oh, this search and this fight and, and now it's finished. And I think that's that's why at the beginning we made such a big thing out of it. Like, you know, spirituality is so special and it's so different than modern life, than my daily life, and it's this and that. But this picture is vital to show us that this is also something ordinary. I think this, you see, there is a little danger with the meditation with the spiritual path of thinking, I am special, I meditate. Hmm? You don't. <laughs> no. I remember when I was in uh, Korea at the beginning, I was really keen. I was so serious and keen. And so, you know, like on three days, you were not obliged to meditate in the, after, in the daytime. You would meditate just in the morning early morning, late at night, daytime you could go for a walk. So the other Westerner would come and knock at my door and say, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And I would say, no, 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 no. I am meditating. You know? <laughs> I am serious. You're not serious, but I am serious. You know? And I think it was such a 
better later I realized it was such a better thing to go for a walk with them and kind of hang out and be a little lighter, be a little ordinary. Because we have such a tendency to feel special. I think this is such a strong part of us that I think, in a way, this is very important. It's when you realize you are ordinary. You are just a human being like other human beings trying the best you can. But what is beautiful about this ordinariness, it means you can do the meditation anytime, anywhere. And in a way, that's what you're doing here. So that when you go back home, you're not thinking, oh, if only I was at Gaia House, then I could meditate. That I really hope you don't do this. <laughs> but that you leave Gaia House and it inspire you to creatively engage in your life, to find a way to meditate within your circumstances, with your own condition. And everybody has different conditions. So there is not one way to meditate at home. Everybody finds their own way to meditate in daily life. And so to be careful of that precious thing, of thinking, oh, that's daily life, but that's so spiritual. To me, this is what is a beauty, is when we can really bring that stability, that openness, that wisdom, that compassion in our life. It was funny, recently, I, uh, for three days, I was special because Dutch TV wanted to do a little program on me for its Women and Buddhism series. And so they came to my house and then for three days I was filmed. And well, they were trying to do it like in, you know, Cinema Verité, but, you know, you had to rehearse all the time, so but <laughs> never mind. And then they wanted to have a little kind of family thing, and they wanted my uh, sister to be interviewed, you know, to see how was she before, <laughs> how is she now? <laughs> is there a difference <laughs> after 30 years of meditation? And I had no idea, because my uh, little sister, my younger sister, is very frank, so very honest. So I had no idea what she was going to say, <laughs> improvement or not, no idea. And so she asked a question, and it was wonderful. I, I was touched by what she said. She said, oh, when she was young, she was really against things. She was against things, push it against ready to fight, ready to kind of, you know, be against. And now she tries to understand. She tried to harmonize. She tried to understand. She tried to help. And I thought, ah, oh. I, 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 personally, I can't really remember that. <laughs> but I thought that was, that was interesting. Because I think that's what this is about, this picture, about how can we be in creative harmony with our daily life. Then, the next picture, the ox and the boy are both forgotten. <laughs> and you just have this famous Zen circle. And this might be, you might see it, 
as emptiness. Emptiness. You know, this is often you have, sometimes you have emptiness with a big E, emptiness. And so you think, wow, you know. So you sit in meditation waiting for emptiness to happen. Do I feel it a little bit? Or sometimes you're afraid of emptiness. I mean, this is sometimes, you know, you sit in meditation and then suddenly you feel yourself so differently. Suddenly it's like your body doesn't exist anymore or doesn't exist in a way you generally feel it. And you kind of, you think, wait a minute. You know, sometimes people say, but my body is not there. I said, come on, come on, it's still here, you know. It's just you feel it differently because there is a releasing. But we have to be very careful. What is interesting, you see, that picture of emptiness is not the last one. That picture is just as part of the path. That, yes, when we meditate, when we meditate intensely, we can have different experience. We can have insight, we can have breakthrough, we can experience emptiness. I remember when I was in Korea and I had this pain in the evening, sometimes I would go inside the, the, the pain and suddenly it was empty. It was a wonderful experience. But then the next evening, I tried it again. It was not empty then. (laughs) So to see that this emptiness, we can taste it. But I don't think it's about everything must be empty all the time. Because I'm not sure that emptiness can wash the dishes. Emptiness can, you know, take care of the children. So this is basically, I would say, an image of de-grasping. And we can de-grasp, release, in many different ways. And back to the spiraling. You see, you have an impression that you stop grasping at something. And you think, this is it. Now, I am fantastic. And then, you have really good circumstances for a long time. And you think, yes, it's sorted. I don't experience this anymore. And suddenly, five years later, you have certain circumstances, and then bang. It's like, it's there again. So it doesn't seem as empty as it looked. So we have to see that it's not like a permanent emptiness. That sometimes we degrasp, we release, and it really goes. And some other time, the power of it goes. But in certain circumstances, the habits can reappear again. But it might not have the same power. Then we have the next one, and it's called, it's called returning to the original place. And so you see you have little birds, water, little tree. And this, in a way, I think is about that emptiness is really about seeing condition, seeing, as Tignatan would say, interdependence. And so from once this self-centeredness, which keeps us very separate, 
start to dissipate, we can be in the world in a much more connected way. So to see the emptiness is not to be above everything, but to be in it in a different way, in a creative way. And then we come back again to this world as it occurs, as it comes to be, as it changes, as it is conditioned, and that actually we can learn from it. My teacher used to have this expression that everything we encounter can be a Dharma discourse. That anything we encounter, used to say, listen to that bird. This bird is telling you a great Dharma talk, delivering a great Dharma talk. Or it would be in the, in the hall where we listen to the talks, there would be a clock. And in the meditation hall, there, was, there would also be a clock. And it was an old-fashioned clock. And the clock would go, tuk, tak, tuk, tak. And of course, the Westerner wanted to get rid of it. because It was too noisy. We can't meditate. But in his Dharma discourse, often he would say, look at the clock. Every tuk, every tak, your life is running out. Are you going to do something about it? Are you going to be awake now? Or are you going to wait till death happens? So in a way, anything. Often we, we think we need to have the great teacher, we need to have the great teaching. But I think in this level, at that stage, everything becomes a teaching. We can learn from everything, from everybody, from ourselves, from others, from situation. And to me, that's what the creative engagement is about, to really, in a way, anything we encounter, trying to creatively engage. And then we have the last one, and then the little boy reappears, and then somebody else appears, and it's called returning with gifts to the marketplace. And so this very much is about that the path is not just about ourselves. It's not just about tinkering with ourselves. But I see very much the path about dissolving the obstacle to have our wisdom and compassion. So at that moment, in a way, we can go out into the world. We have more stability. We have more empathy. We have more compassion. But it's not any compassion. I think it's very important. Because, you see, you can have the feeling of compassion, but you might not be wisely compassionate. I think a lot of things are done uh, compassionately, which actually are not wise, and might not have good result. And so creative wise compassion, to me, one of the key is listening. And this is why it is one of the practice. Because in, in order, compassion is not just a feeling. I feel compassionate. But actually, it's a creative response 
to the suffering of ourselves or the suffering of others. But if we want to help that suffering, to succor that suffering, to diminish that suffering, we need to be able to listen. What is it they need? Can I give it? I think this is an important key. So in a way to see that the whole path, I feel, is about us becoming more stable, more open, more wise. So then we can be creatively compassionate. And then we have to be careful there that often when we think about compassion, we think about heroic compassion. I'm going to save the world. But I think creative-wise compassion is, again, all around us. Compassionate to ourselves, to our family, to our neighbor, to our society, and then further on. But acknowledging our limited means. And also acknowledging that if we are with suffering, it's going to make us sad. And that's why the stability is so important with the compassion. And so back to the spiraling, I think we can be at any given time, we can go back to any of these places. And so it's kind of like a spiral. It's not that we go linearly through the stages, but we can reflect, oh, I am more in that empty space, or I'm more in that searching place. You know, maybe you are doing a meditation for 10 years, which is a little too tight. And I often see that with my friend. And then you decide to do something more spacious. Or maybe you were doing a spacious meditation and it was a little too vague. And then you go back to something which is a little more tight. So I think it's kind of like this organic path. I think that's what the pictures are about. So that's what I wanted to say. And we decided to photocopy them so you can keep them. And who knows? It could be useful. Then I had two questions I wanted to answer tonight. And then tomorrow, the results are question I'll answer uh, in the meditation instruction. So one was about when I make a, a little point those a day about I was sitting in meditation and then I thought I was too distracted, so let's do something useful, let's read. And I said I could not read. But it doesn't mean I could not physically read. I could read. But what was interesting is that I did not feel like reading. I had the idea, meditation is not working, I'm too distracted, let's do something useful. And then I had the idea that if I read, I'll have the feeling that I'm doing something useful. I'm not wasting my time. But what I was pointing at is yet I could read the book, but I really did not feel like reading because I was actually in a meditative state insofar that I was still with that intention of awareness. I was still actually in the awareness, even though it did not look so clear and bright. But it did not mean that Neurologically, in my brain, it stopped working. Then, there was this note. 
Ah, so there is a little quote. As I thirst mused, the fires kindled. What to do about rage? So, yeah, it's a little strange. Sometimes you sit in meditation and you're supposed to be calm and quiet and compassionate. And you're sitting there thinking, I hate these guys, you know. I, you know, and sometimes you plot revenge or you, you know, very compassionate activity. And, or you feel this intent, I want to get them or whatever it is. And again, I think it's different. If what to do with rage, if we're sitting here, I would say just experience it. Because I think if we have this feeling, often when we have a strong feeling, and it's generally a sensation in the body, we generally go into the meaning of it. I feel this, this must be rage, it's about this, that, and another. But when we are on a retreat like this, and hopefully nobody does anything to us to cause it, then what you are experiencing actually is a funny feeling, is a funny, intense feeling. And so what I would suggest generally is to try not to go into the naming of it, the story of it, but more, if it's not too intense, how does it feel? How does it change? And at some point, generally goes. But if it's too intense, like it's really intense, and it's very sticky with the thought, then what I would say is that it's so there, don't focus on it. Just focus on the sound. Focus on the feet. Focus on the hands on each other. So that then there can be more space around it. And let it pass. Let it take its time. I think we feel this strong feeling generally because something happened. And then it's kind of like a shock to the system and it has to go through the system in some way. But what we want to do is not amplify it. We don't want to grasp at it and amplify it. So can we be with it as it is there and just let it pass through us? Or is it so intense that when we focus on it, it becomes more intense? And then I would suggest to go into something which is more spacious. So I think it's, again, a little about how can I creatively engage with that. Okay, is there any questions? Yeah. Um, what is the difference then between going into that creative, standing back from the intense emotion and distraction? I, I am a great fan of what I call meditative creative distraction. <laughs> because I think there is a tendency to, to think I must be aware. Like there is this late motive, be with things as they are. So whatever you feel, I must be with it. And not only I must be with it, I must go deep into it. But personally, I would say, uh, back to creativity. If it's light, there is three levels. Light, habitual, intense. If it's light, you can be with it. And just be with it, experience it, 
experience how it changes. If it's habitual, it's a little more sticky, but still you can be with it. Sometimes you can be with it, sometimes not. Depends. But if it's really intense, because something happened and you've been shocked and everything, I think it's so there, I don't see much point in going into it, because it's so there anyway. And then I think, to me, it's more creative to be more spacious around it, because often what we do is we grasp at it. And as soon, it's already intense. If on top of it we grasp at it, we amplify it, and then we overwhelm. And so I think it seems to me much better to actually creatively open up to something greater. Because otherwise we think, I am just that. I am just this feeling. But we're not just a feeling, a thought, however strong they are. We are not just that. We are more than that. So we have the choice. Either we can focus on that, but we can also, at that moment, there is... Somebody might be talking to us, or we could be listening to the sound. So to me, it is not actually a, a, a distraction as such, because it's also something which is in the environment. It is kind of like, where do I put my focus? And what is it that helps me to be with this? And what is very interesting is that in one of the texts, one of the early Buddhist texts, the Pali Sutta, the Buddha give five methods to deal with really heavy, intense thinking, feeling. And one of the methods is actually turning away from it. It's very interesting. So it's not, it doesn't tell you just be with it, first method, second method, be even more with it. No, no, he has many different methods. It's very interesting. And one of them is that, turn away from it. And then you can come back to it later. Yes? Um, so a couple of questions I've, I've written down, which actually came up again during this talk. It's been an amazing week. I'm concerned about the, the back and forth in the falling away straight afterwards. Will you be talking about the practice, like in terms of your recommended practice, and also... Um, on the last picture, in, back in the marketplace, when do we stop asking a question, what is this? Or do we always ask it, and how do we ask it, say, in a business meeting or in a conversation or in reading? and That kind of stuff, thank you. Uh, I was planning to talk about it uh, tomorrow morning, but I can do it quickly now. Yes, we'll, uh, tomorrow morning and then the last uh, morning on Friday morning, we'll talk very much about meditation in daily life. And in terms of what do we do, like, you know, what is this in a meeting or watching the breath in a meeting or... Uh, what I think we have to see is that you have what I would call formal meditation and informal meditation. And both are meditation. But formal meditation I would see as I'm going to cultivate being aware of the breath in this way. I'm going to be cultivating being aware of the sound in this way or aware of the body, body scanning in this way or questioning in this way, which generally imply you sit down or you walk and you do it. But then you have what I would call meditation in daily life where it's more you bring 
the creative awareness to what you do. For example, if you are at the computer, one of the creative awareness is how am I holding my body? How am I kind of getting so intent that I'm getting hungry and maybe I should stop for five minutes? Or you're driving. Driving is very interesting. You drive and you think of something else and you're driving this thing. It's quite a dangerous thing, driving. You know, and you think about yesterday or tomorrow, and you know, yeah, it's okay. You know, but if suddenly something comes in, then... And I think this is something we can do as we drive, still doing the driving, but bringing the awareness to driving. The way we look at things, the way we hold our body, the way we're driving, and also our intention. You know, because sometimes... You're late, and then you drive fast. And I think, is it better to arrive dead or late? You know? <laughs> Good question. So it's kind of, in a way, what, what's my intention? What's going on here? So you can, uh, one of the great places to do meditation, if you can do meditation in a business meeting, you've made it. You know, you're really close <laughs> up there. Because it's really tough. You have all these people, you have your intention, what you want, and all what everybody else wants, and lots of politics, and lots of uh, feelings. You know. And then, let's say two people start to upmanship, and you feel... And then it's very useful to bring the stability, the openness. How can I be with this? And to me, it's like... A practice all the time in different way according to the circumstances. But I'll talk a little more about it tomorrow and then the last day. And we have to stop here so you can do a little walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.